Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown, and today we are joined by Dr. Ben Hoffman. Hey, Curtis. Dr. Hoffman joins us again. He is going to give us a rundown on some updates regarding COVID-19. It's one of those things that we've all been talking a little about it. We've brought it up but uh, I occasionally, but I think this is a good uh, little deeper dive as to where we are and where we are going and some bright spots uh, on the future ahead. Definitely bright spots. And, you know, we last talked to him early on. He was gracious to kind of do an emergency podcast with us and, and just kind of give our uh, listeners an, an idea on how they can kind of get through things. And, you know, at that time, Curtis, I never imagined that we would still be talking about this early on in 2021, never in a million years. So I'm just really grateful that he can give us some updates today and put a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel for us. Enjoy our COVID-19 update with Dr. Ben Hoffman. Well, thank you for joining us again, Dr. Hoffman, and kind of get an update on COVID and kind of where we are now. And I think there's a lot of positivity in the air, but there's still a lot of unknown. Current thing is definitely the vaccine is on everybody's mind. So that'd probably be a good place to start. In general, how are vaccines made and how do they work in the body? Okay, it's a good question because the way we're making some of these vaccines for COVID-19 are novel. They're different than what we've done historically. Historically, what we did was we made what were called vector vaccines. And what that is, it, it contains a weakened version of a live virus. It's usually a different virus than the one that causes the illness, but it has a genetic material from that virus in it. And then you insert it into this, this weakened version of a live virus and you inject it into the body. That's typically the way that measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B, and other types of vaccines have been made. Uh, typically, it takes a fairly long time to perfect that for any given vaccine or for any given illness that you're trying to prevent the person from getting. However, in recent years, there's been development of a new type of vaccine called a mRNA or messenger RNA vaccine. And what that is, it contains materials from the virus that gives our cells instructions for how to make a harmless protein that's unique to the virus. So in this case, it's they're taking the RNA and uh, makes the, which makes the spike protein on the surface of this COVID-19 virus, and then they're injecting it into the body. And then the body recognizes and starts coding for that spike protein and builds antibody to it. You're not injecting any of the live virus or attenuated live virus. And the interesting thing about these mRNA vaccines is that they should be harmless because all you're doing is just taking a little snippet of that RNA, which is like RNA, which is like DNA, it's the reproductive material, and you're injecting it into the body, and then the body recognizes it as foreign and starts building antibody to it. That's really fascinating. Now, I remember for me, biology was uh, quite a few years ago, but for those who may not know, basically these proteins are kind of like the the key to the house, right? So that's what allows things into the virus cell. So if it basically is letting your body get access to be able to get into the virus to destroy it, if you will, correct? Correct. What we do is we take these little pieces of RNA and we encase it in a little piece of fat, a little globule of fat, which allows it to uh, make its way 
into the body. And it's a unique way to do things. And it's been shown to be very effective both in the experimental setting prior to COVID-19 and now when we've been doing empirical trials with the use of the multiple vaccines that are on the market. I can say that that type of new messenger RNA vaccine technology is what's being used for the Moderna and for the Pfizer. The other vaccines that are coming onto the market, like the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, are a little bit different. They're more of the traditional way of doing vaccines. And now that's kind of interesting that they are having different ways of administering, you know, that these vaccines, they're all accomplishing the same thing. Their process of getting it done are different. Is there any advantage or disadvantage that people should be, hey, I'd rather have the Johnson & Johnson versus the Moderna? Do you see any difference between those? Well, Curtis, first of all, I want to mention this is not unusual to have more than one method of vaccine to vaccinate people against an organism. So, for instance, the polio vaccine that was you know, enormous landmark in vaccine development. It was developed by the March of Dimes back in the 40s and 50s, which, by the way, took years to develop. That one was originally a live attenuated virus, and then they moved it over to a different type of technology, and both of them were available. It's also true of the typhoid vaccine. The typhoid vaccine, there's both an injectable vaccine, and then there's also an oral vaccine, and they work in different ways. So, And you can get both of them today. In terms of their effectiveness, it appears as though all of them are similarly effective. But, you know, we're talking about COVID-19 now. Although only in the United States, only the Moderna and the Pfizer has been approved. Shortly, the AstraZeneca vaccine will be approved. The AstraZeneca vaccine, I believe, was approved in the last couple of days in the UK. Uh, And then after that, I believe Johnson & Johnson and uh, there's a series of Chinese vaccines. I think there's four or five different companies in China that are manufacturing vaccines, and they likely will seek approval outside of China for their use. Ben, I know a lot of people are talking about the side effects of the vaccine or just vaccines in general as far as some people get a fever, some people, you know, kind of feel run down for a day. I know some friends of mine are worried that that, you know, that when they get the flu vaccine that that they've actually gotten the flu with those side effects. Can you talk a little bit to the side effects for us, please? Side effects are common with vaccine. And a lot of it is sort of what I'd call idiosyncratic. There's no consistency from person to person as to what the type of side effects are going to be. So with these vaccines, one of the reasons you do trials, clinical trials, is to see whether or not there's any side effects, whether those side effects be the uh, transient ones that last a day or two, or ones that become rather severe. And and in certain cases, some vaccines historically have led to even death, and they've been withdrawn after the clinical trials. What appears to be the case with the clinical trials, or what is the case with the clinical trials of the vaccines that are currently either far into development as phase three human trials, or are currently on the market, is that they have the potential of causing low-grade type of effects, like maybe a low-grade temperature, fatigue, some arm pain, which again are transient. They last a day maybe two in a small percentage of the patients. There's also headaches have been described with these vaccines. Now, there was a concern 
that there have been reported a number of people that have had more severe effects, either severe allergic effects or some sort of neurologic complication. Now, these were done in the clinical trials. These were found to be the case in clinical trials. And one of the roles of the advisory boards that are independent of the vaccine manufacturer. Typically, vaccines go through multiple layers of review of independent. They also start internally at the company, and they're not independent, but then they move on to a hierarchy that goes up eventually into the regulatory bodies of a country, let's say in this case, the FDA. One of the challenges is you have to determine whether or not any side effects are due to them occurring randomly in any population of, let's say, 50,000 people, because if you're giving somebody something you know, you're giving 50,000 people a vaccine, those people, some of them are going to develop diseases or medical problems completely unrelated to the vaccine. So you have to determine whether or not these more complex medical problems were related to the vaccine or were just randomly occurred and they would have occurred without the vaccine. And it appears as though there have been no serious side effects associated with this vaccine, other than perhaps the, the rare allergic responses we've seen. I've also read an interesting fact. You may be aware of the fact that the government tracks every adverse vaccine side effect. They've been doing it for 30 or 40 years. And there's a big registry of this, and in part because the government assumes some of the responsibility when a manufacturer makes vaccine they assume liability for the manufacture of that vaccine, or at least some type, not total liability, but I understand there is government support if something goes wrong. And there has never been, as long as the government in the U.S. has been tracking vaccine, that there has been an adverse side effect that's considered severe after 43 days. Now, it doesn't mean to say this current vaccine will set a new record, but the history of a lot of vaccine research and a subsequent vaccination of large populations of people, that once you reach a certain date, it's, it's not likely to cause any severe side effect. And we've passed that threshold in time. Now, this whole issue, the, the fully answer your question, this whole issue is a bit more complicated in that there has been in recent years an anti-vaccination movement in parts of the world, particularly the United States and the United Kingdom. And it has happened for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is that there was the belief that it was possible for vaccines, particularly these childhood vaccines that we give to all our kids, would cause some sort of autistic spectrum type of illness. And I'm sure you've read about that. And it was actually, the research for this was done by a researcher in the United Kingdom, and there was extensive research that was done by him, and it was published. Subsequently, there's been a lot of review of that data, and it's his theories and his science have been debunked, that uh, they made up some of the data, the data was inaccurately analyzed, and it's been reviewed by many different independent panels, and this notion that a vaccine can cause autism has been debunked. That said, there's still people out there that don't believe it. But there has not been any compelling research to suggest that vaccine could lead to these types of adverse side effects. And then lastly, what I want to say is that these messenger RNA vaccines, if you understand the science of how they're developed and taking little pieces of the RNA, again, RNAs like DNA, and that RNA sits inside this virus. It's almost like a golf ball 
that has a little bit of RNA in it. And then on the surface of that golf ball are receptors. Uh, we call them the spike receptor. There's a lot of different respect receptors on the surface of it. So it's like a golf ball with little spike thorns sticking out. The reason they exist is because when the person inhales the virus, it sticks to the mucosa. They need those spike proteins to attach to the mucosa. And then once they attach to your airway mucosa, they actually make their way through the mucosa, through those spike proteins, and they inject uh, that whole piece of RNA into the body cells. And then the body cells, the machinery in the cell is repurposed to manufacture more of those viruses, that the RNA, and therefore, you know, cause replication, reproduction of more of those little golf balls that are making it into your body and then all the side, all the impacts of that occur. When you review that science, there's really no way that that little piece of RNA that's being injected in the vaccine itself could cause disease. It just, there's no biologic plausibility to it. Now, is it possible that we don't fully understand this? Yes, but I really don't think so. I think all the scientists in the world believe that it's an effective way to make a vaccine and it's a safe way to make a vaccine. And many, and I suspect going forward, we'll primarily be using these mRNA vaccines. Dr. Hoffman, that was uh, so much good information. And I know that, you know, we've we've kind of focused these questions a lot on ones that we've been fielding on the job site, at home with our friends and family. And so I think we've got a lot of really good vaccine information from you. And, and thank you for that. My final vaccine question for you came specifically to me. And it was uh, somebody saying, you know, I've, I've avoided the COVID virus for the last nine months that we've been worried about it. Why do I need to get a vaccine now? I haven't gotten the disease. I'll be fine. Well, uh, that's one approach. I don't <laughs> think it's a rational approach. I think that it's not rational because the thing is, the only way that this little bug is going to go away is if we develop enough immunity in the population so that that bug, when it enters any given microenvironment, has no place to go and it just dies off. It's really not living, but it just has no place to go. So if you think about if you're in a room and in that room there are 10 people and if there are five people that have had it and five people that haven't had it, that COVID bug comes in and it's going to have five people that it could possibly infect. As you reduce that number down to four people, three people, two people, one person, it's less likely that that organism is going to be able to infect anybody and it needs to infect somebody in order to continue its survival. Now, if we can, the question is how many people in that room need to be either infected naturally or vaccinated in order for that bug to say, ah, I'm going to some other room, looking for some other susceptible people. In somewhere probably between six out of that group and nine out of that group. Before, because the bug is going to like float around the room. It may miss that one person and say, ah, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm now dead. The other way of answering this question is as we approach higher rates immunity in the population, whether it be from natural infection, once you get the infection, or from vaccine, the greater the chance that, that individual doesn't need to get a vaccine. However, we're not seeing those rates in this population yet. I think arguably, maybe 30% of the U.S. population has gotten it. 
So you still have seven people in that room that haven't gotten it. So there's plenty of people, including the hypothetical friend who could get it. So I think until it's really clear that there's immunity in that room, and we call that herd immunity or herd immunity in our community, in our state, our country, then the person should get vaccinated. I think it's not a wise decision. Most younger people, you know, I suspect that, you know, a lot of your friends are, you know, at a younger age, do not seem to get as sick with this, this organism. Although, you know, just yesterday, you may have seen the congressman-elect who was 40 died from COVID. There are younger people getting infected from this. And the, and the new variant that's out there, this is no surprise, there's a new variant that started in the UK. They noticed it in the last couple of weeks. It's essentially that same RNA with a couple of changes in it. it appears to be more transmissible. Hopefully, it will not be more virulent or lethal. Uh, but it seems as though it's probably more transmissible. Transmissible meaning that instead of needing 100 viral particles to get sick, you may only need 50 viral particles to get sick. And so the chances of getting it are greater. However, the upside of that, and this has not been talked about in the news, is that in the world of virology, there's a general truth, and it's a general truth. It's not an absolute truth. And that is, as you increase transmissibility, the ease to become ill, you reduce lethality. So if you, as something becomes less, more transmittable, your chances of getting sicker from it than the one that was less transmissible is, so you have less of a chance of getting very sick from it. And the re, there's a reason for that. And it's just sort of practically, from a practical perspective, it's easy to understand. The sicker an organism makes you, the less likely you're going anywhere. So if you take SARS or MERS that were highly lethal, they really made people sick. Those people stayed at home. They couldn't go anywhere. They were too sick to go anywhere. Now, arguably say, well, some of them had to make it to the supermarket so they could survive and they dragged themselves out of bed. But for the most part, with the increase in transmissibility, it means that you're not as sick. So hopefully this may actually be better. It still has to be proven. But again, this is a general concept in virology. That is an interesting one. And you're right. That is not something that is uh, uh, widely known, but, but it definitely makes sense. Just a break in our interview today to ask you a little question. Would you pass a safety inspection if one happened today on site? You need a safety compliance easy button and Fit for Work can help. Fines are real and the human consequences can be much worse. Get up to speed quickly and easily by working with our experienced team of safety professionals. We will partner with you to find gaps, get you in compliance, and keep you there. It's not worth the risk. Visit our website at wellworkforce.com and click on the Connect With Us button. Shifting gears here a little bit, uh, last time when we talked to you, it was very early on in the, in the pandemic. Has there been any changes in regard to testing over the last six or so months that you could talk on? Yeah, there's been enormous changes in testing since we last spoke. Currently, there are two ways to diagnose COVID reasonably simply. One is the PCR, which is actually looking for the RNA inside that little golf ball. And then there's antigen, which is looking for the spike protein. Now, the, let's talk about the PCR for a minute. Up until a few months ago, 
the only way to get a PCR test was to have some probe stuck to the back of your nose, tickle your brain. People didn't like it. And then put it into a little jar and it would go off to the lab. And anywhere from one to 14 days later, it was very variable, you'd get a test result. It's an accurate way of doing things, except unfortunately it was very slow in many cases. The other way to do a PCR is they now have rapid test PCRs. And so they can just take some nasal swabs or even some, you know, some mucus from the throat and they can put it onto a little cassette looking thing and stick it in a little machine that's present in an office. And they can determine with reasonably, though not 100% accuracy, whether or not piece, you know, the PCR is positive when the RNA is there. You still can get the laboratory-based one, or you can find places that are doing rapid PCR. Now, there's the antigen test. The antigen test has come onto the market, and these are what you call lateral flow cassettes. They're similar to those little antibody tests that we were doing early on in the pandemic that had real serious accuracy problems. It's, you know, a way to easily understand how it works. It's very similar to a home pregnancy test. You know, you urinate on a piece of basically the same type of paper, and there's something in that piece of paper that binds with the hormone that comes out in pregnancy, and it shows positive. And then usually people go to the doctor and confirm it. So those little lateral flow antigen cassettes are around. They're not expensive. They're very accurate if they're positive. They're they're 99% accurate if you have COVID. They're They're 90% accurate if they turn out negative, in that if one out of 10 negative tests that are done are in fact an error and the person is positive. So they have a, so they have that inaccuracy for people who are, who are carrying the virus, but it doesn't show positive. And that's pretty similar to like a pregnancy test as well. It's just that there's not enough of the hormones to detect that it's there, correct? Yeah. Or we don't really, you know, these t- there's a rule in laboratory science. As you increase sensitivity, that sensitivity and specificity, as you increase one, the other one's going to go down. There are no tests that are 100% sensitive and 100% specific. It's the nature of the technology that you have to, and this is a screening technology, that you're always looking to see if somebody is positive but you'll be willing to accept certain inaccuracy in that type of test. And it's just how you do screening. What you should do if you have a positive antigen test, or I should say this, if you have a negative antigen test and the doctor or the clinician feels as though you have symptoms of COVID, meaning that the test showed negative, but in fact, you lost your taste and smell or whatever, you should always follow it up with PCR to manage the false negative. However, these tests are really good for, for surveillance and screening purposes. So where we've been using them in workplaces, to they're inexpensive in workplaces to screen otherwise non-symptomatic people. And although they're not 100% accurate, they're accurate enough that will make it uh, possible to reduce the chances of somebody who's sick or is carrying the virus, I should say, coming into the workplace. Well, because it sounds like uh, in the general idea is that there's no one thing that has been able to be helpful. It's not just wearing a mask helps. It's not just wearing or just screening. It's all these different things together make for an effective 
combatant against it. So I've been curious about this. It seems like the measures that people take on work sites where they are doing screening, such as temperatures, questionnaires, mask or face coverings, has anything changed in regard to what we first thought people needed to be screened for compared to what they are being screened for now? Like, What is some of the more effective signs that are being screened for? Well, Curtis, first of all, risk management is always about multiple layers of doing things. So it's almost like we may have spoken about this in the past. It's a Swiss cheese model. You can make, you put your line up six pieces of Swiss cheese and you may be able to make it through the first hole, maybe the second hole, hopefully not the third hole or fourth hole or fifth hole. You have to layer risk management strategies on top of one another to, to reduce the chances of whatever adverse outcome you're trying to find will occur. So regards to the, what you were just mentioning, first thing you want to do is you want to have access controls. So access controls would be somebody answering questions. And we all know those questions because they're asked to us multiple times a day now. You know, have you been around anybody? Are you symptomatic, et cetera? Then checking somebody's temperature. Then once they reach the workplace, keeping people away from one another. And there's multiple ways of trying to enforce that. Some are easier than others, depending upon the work situation. And then the last really layer after the separations in the workplace and disinfection would be testing, would be a surveillance or screening type of testing. I think if you have all those in place, I think you're, you can approach zero chances of not necessarily bringing, not having anybody in the workplace with COVID, but the chances of somebody transmitting it to somebody else in the workplace approaches zero. And I can tell you from an empirical or experiential perspective, mine, you know, we work with hundreds of workplaces. It has been effective. Uh, we have seen very little transmission at employers that have instituted all of those controls. That is, you know, like the layers of Swiss cheese, they have five or six layers there and they've not been able to make it through to transmitting in the workplace. Dr. Hoffman, kind of as a final summary of our COVID update today, what are some words that you would have for our listeners, some words of hope or just some advice on, on getting us through to, to what our, our new normal is? It's a good question. And I've been writing about that. I don't know if you folks read my brief every week. But, you know, we're at the probably next to last phase of this pandemic. You know, we have turned the corner. There's no doubt about it. Vaccine is out there. I think the most important thing is for people to not lose the stamina and the efforts that they have going. I see all around me people have COVID fatigue. It's pretty significant. And there, it's certain situations, people have just said, look, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm just going about my life. And I understand that. However, they may be wanting to go about their life, but their exposures do impact other people. So they could easily be non-symptomatic or minimally symptomatic because they're out and about. And they can infect a family member or friend or coworker. I think it's, it's about stamina to take the last, you know, we're sort of in a you know, a baseball game in our fourth overtime, right? I mean, everybody's exhausted. But we have, you know, we're reaching the end of this. These vaccines are going to work. And I think people need to believe the science. So when I tell, I have four adult children, I tell them, look, really stay in your bubble. You know, you, you can people can go out and do their things with friends, but they got to be in your bubble. Stick to your bubble. Don't let people come and go from your bubble. And let's just get over this thing. 
and hopefully, you know, the, the light here is at the end of the tunnel. So I don't, and get the vaccine. And that's about all I can tell people, uh, hang in there. Well, I think that's great advice and just encouragement to know that things are getting better. We we are kind of in that final stretch, I feel like, and taking that opportunity when it comes to you. So if you could just uh, remind our listeners where they can view your uh, weekly updates. Yeah, just go to worksteps.com. Every week, what we do is we, during that week, we are reviewing the world's literature on COVID-related issues. And there's usually anywhere from 10 to 20 articles that are summarized, most of which you probably would not have seen, some of which you will have seen in the news, but it goes into more detail. It's our review of it. And then in the front of all that, I write a letter. It could be one to two pages summarizing some important points from that week or going over an important issue that it's primarily employer-related. Employers need to think through. So this past week, I sort of summarized the past year, but the one before was really talking about if you're a leader in your organization, and I'm not talking about the CEO, but I'm talking about somebody who manages people and you know, is dealing with all the stuff that's happening these days. It gave some ideas as to how to do it. It was based upon an article in the Harvard Business Review about management in this period of time right now. But we go over things like travel restrictions and changes in EEOC uh, requirements. It's, it's, it's usually what the hot topic is of the week and then the summary of the news. So just go to worksteps.com. It's on there. You'll see a banner at the top. And although I do my piece, which is a small piece, which is really the letter, there are several people that work on this all week long. I really want to recognize them for the hard work they've done. The, the newsletter is being read by 40 plus thousand people. So I think that we've been successful in trying to help people manage things. And that's great to getting those messages out. And uh, anytime you do something weekly, that is a, a big commitment. So thank you for doing that. And uh, we really appreciate your time and giving us an update on where we are and where we're going. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. And please have a happy new year. And feel free to get back in touch with talk about Like we mentioned, we are so grateful that Dr. Hoffman took time out of his busy schedule again to give our listeners and us some updates on COVID-19 where and also where we're, we're headed. You know, I did mention it during the interview, but I've been fielding a lot of questions from some of the employees at the different sites that I'm at, but then also friends and family. And, and this is going to be a great episode to refer everybody to. And I'm, I'm just really thankful for all the answers that he gave us today. Yeah, no, it was a really good overview. And I did appreciate some of those different facts about viruses because I feel like people tend to check out memes more than anything <laughs> for, for their facts sometimes. So I did like, yeah, he, he brought it down much more in a way that I think people can understand where it's like, you know, the virus is like a golf ball with little spikes on it. You know, it's understanding how those things work. And as far as how the new vaccine is, it's not a live virus. It, you know, those symptoms are nothing more than your body responding to it. So it's a good thing that you're, you know, or it's a a normal thing to have any mild symptoms. So a lot of good information in there. And I, I did appreciate him presenting it in a way that's uh, simple and easy to understand. I am hopeful. My dad, he works in medical research as well, and he's very optimistic. And just the fact that we're going to need about 70% of the population, you know, he said six to nine people to have the vaccine before that herd immunity really is a 
really going to be effective. So definitely don't go out and cut in line. But, you know, when it becomes available, just getting that vaccine is a, is a good thing. You know, I, Curtis, I also really like the analogy that he did of 10 people in a room and right. five people, you know, it gives you a visual. It gives you something to think about as far as explaining that herd immunity a little bit and why it is important to still get the vaccine. So really wanted to, to focus on that analogy, too. Definitely. So we want to thank you for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen. And to get a hold of us, please email us podcast at wellworkforce.com or check out our website, wellworkforce.com with any questions. And remember, prevention improves lives. Prevention improves lives.